Well, here we are. We're working our way through Hebrews. This is part 23. We're not halfway through the book yet. What kind of warning do we have in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8? That's the title. What kind of warning do we have in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8? And I mentioned last week that this morning and next Sunday morning, probably two of the more uh, challenging teaching times for a church like ours. Let's read these words. Hebrews 6, starting at verse 4 through verse 8. I really hope you have a Bible with you in one form or another. You know, hard copy or your smartphone or your iPad or whether you just happen to have the whole thing memorized. Hebrews 6, 4. For it is impossible. So this is the... Something's impossible in these verses. For it is impossible in the case of those who have... who have once been enlightened, the actual, in the Greek, it would be uh, once finally enlightened, or one time enlightened, but it reads, of course, better like this. Who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. We're not told what that gift is, but they tasted it. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit... And have, and he uses this word again. See, he said, tasted there. And now he says it there. Who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And he would have repeated tasted because it applies to the last part. Tasted the powers of the age to come. So once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, tasted the powers of the age to come. And of course... Here's the hard part. And then have fallen away to restore. Some translations say renew. But the idea is bringing, bringing uh, someone back to repentance. There's no point talking about restoring repentance or renewing repentance for someone who has never repented. Right? I mean, that's just, there's no logic in that. To restore them That's these people who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word, tasted the powers of the age to come, then fallen away. It's it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since they are, and then these actions, crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. We won't get there today, but next week we will. And then this picture, starting at verse 7. So this is a picture that illustrates the things he's just been saying. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it, he, he doesn't repeat land, but the it is that, it's the land. But if it bears thorns and thistles. As a result of the rain that falls on it, if it just produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let's pray. 
We love your word because it's not a trite word. It's, it's a holy word. It's a revealed word. This very epistle says that the word, it, it cuts into our lives and it pierces and it divides. Passages like this we, we want to handle correctly. And we, so we say, Holy Spirit, come and do your work on both sides of the pulpit and let your church be edified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There's warning here, obviously. The title, what, what kind of warning do we have? If you go back to the end of chapter 4, you have some of the most promising words. Our time of need. We have a sympathetic high priest. Come. He feels with you, not against you. Come boldly through Christ. Some of the warmest, most inviting words in the whole New Testament are in this epistle. And then there's words like this. I think we all need to understand that there is a place for warning. We'll look more about this in, in, in future weeks. There's a place for warning and there's a place for comforting. And a, a church that only does one or the other isn't a faithful church. If you're working your way through the Bible, you'll uh, no doubt just have been reading Solomon, dedicating the temple. Anybody there reading Solomon? It's in Second Chronicles, the end of First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and Solomon praise. It's, it's before he messes up his life and disobeys the Lord. Go back to Deuteronomy. People will say this all the time. They'll say, how come, you know, God, all these guys with their eight million wives, how come God allowed that? Why didn't he do something about that? And you go back to Deuteronomy, God tells them very clearly, don't, don't you copy the nations in taking multiple wives. It's stated. And when they do, God doesn't strike them dead. But it's the end of them. It always is. And so here's Solomon before that. And he's just finished building this temple. David had it in his heart, but Solomon built it. And he's praying. And he, it's a wonderful prayer where he says, Lord, and, and when your people forsake you, when they call upon your name from this place, let your ear be inclined to this place. Be merciful to your people in this place. And Lord, when you're, you're angry with your people because of their sin and you shut up the heavens and there's no rain on the earth, Lord, be gracious. Look on this place, this, this temple, and be gracious to your people. And he goes through about six or seven things. Let your presence be here. And God's, God answers. God says, I will do all of these things. And he repeats Solomon's words. When you sin and call upon me, I will forgive you. When I'm judging the earth and there's lack of rain, I will send rain on the earth. He goes through all the same things. And then Solomon never mentioned this, but God in his response says, and if you don't honor me in this place, I will drive you out of this land. Read it. I will make you a byword among the nations, and they will mock and scoff. All Solomon did was pray. And God says, I'll do those things. And then God, 
if there's something about our God, he, he, he cannot help himself when it comes to warnings. If you don't like warnings, you, you really need, I'm sorry, you need a different religion and you need a different book. Because this one is packed with warnings from a gracious, loving God. Packed with warnings. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. I think everyone should understand what we're trying to do this Sunday. We are uh, considering the five most contested verses in the New Testament. The church has divided over these frightening words for centuries, which means we will have to pray and we will have to think. I'm sorry, I know it's July 16th. You are going to have to think in church this morning. The last thing we're going to do this morning is reapply the, the, the practical instruction in the context of these verses. They are, like all verses in your Bible, these verses are meant to deepen your walk with Jesus. And yes, there are things hard to explain, 511, hard to explain. But just because they're hard to explain doesn't make them unimportant or less important or less helpful. And there are a lot of hard to explain things in this text. Let me give you a bit of background. The big division over these verses is pretty simple to state. The the details get a little murky. But the big division, just so you know, and we won't go over this again and again and again. I'm just going to frame this up this morning. The big division, oversimplified a bit, is whether a genuine believer can ever become an unbeliever. I mean, that's the issue. Can a truly regenerate person lose his or her standing in Christ? Can salvation be lost? There are basically two sides. More, I know that's oversimplified. Basically two sides. Virtually all, though not quite all, Calvinists will say that it's impossible for a truly redeemed saint to lose eternal life. Wesleyans, which would be our roundabout, which would be our roots as a Pentecostal church, Wesleyans say that while it's not easy to lose your salvation and it's not common to lose your salvation, it is possible to forfeit a genuine saving faith in Christ. This is not to be confused with backsliding. We don't use that word much anymore. It's not a bad term. It's in the Bible. So when we say it's impossible for a person to lose, when, when we say it's possible for a person to lose saving faith, That's not to be confused with backsliding from which repentance can arise, renewing grace can come, even to the most rebellious, stubborn person over years. There can be restoration. So obviously those two theologies shape the way this text is approached. For the Calvinists, there are only 
two options available for verses 4, 5, and 6. Look at them again. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Let me simplify that screen for you. That's a bit of a mess. Who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, tasted the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. There's, so there's that part. It's there. It's what it means that gets debated. To restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to public contempt. So for the Calvinist, if these cautioned people, we know from verse 9 that they haven't fallen away. He tells us that they're not there yet. Chapter 5 says they're dull of hearing, they're immature, they're not growing. But for the Calvinist, if these cautioned people fall away from grace, then they just aren't truly regenerate in the first place, or what they lose isn't salvation. That's how they approach that text. That would include... um, now, again, I, generalizations don't always work. I understand that. Many uh, Presbyterian, Reformed, many Baptist would be Calvinistic in their theology. So if these cautioned people fall away from grace, then they never were Christians, or what they lose isn't salvation. So, so some will say these people were never saved in the first place. John MacArthur. John MacArthur will see these cautioned in our text as interested but sort of unregenerate Jews still clinging to the old covenant. So they are, they are devoutly religious, but they reject Jesus as the Messiah. So they see no value in Christ's atoning work as the fulfillment of that whole Old Testament sacrificial system. So when they are urging Jewish Christians and others to come back, like Galatians is all about this, to come back under Judaism and the Old Testament holy days and diets and sacrifices. That's what this writer means when he says they're crucifying the Son all over again and holding him up to contempt. That's John MacArthur's interpretation of this passage. These people aren't Christians in the first place. Others, like John Piper, he will see these cautioned people as unregenerate people, not Christians, who, who have had some special religious experiences of grace. They've claimed a relationship with Jesus, but they've never separated themselves from the world. I'll show you that next Sunday, I'll, I'll, those quotes. So, so these people, according to Piper, they treasure self-will more than they treasure Christ. And this is how they crucify, once again, the Son of God and hold him up to contempt. Is everybody with me so far? To complicate things, just a touch. There are other people who are Calvinists who are what we call covenant theologians. Let me just, don't don't blank out. This isn't complicated. I believe people like Timothy Keller would make a distinction, listen, between being a participant in the covenant through infant baptism or perhaps later 
infant baptism, communion, confirmation in the faith. So covenant theology makes a distinction between that entrance into the covenant community and being one of the elect. So in other words, not all members of the covenant are regenerate. If that strikes you as strange, they would say, well, read Paul. And he makes it clear that all the descendants of Abraham really weren't God's faithful elect. He makes that distinction in the book of Romans. There are people who were Jewish, who were circumcised, who were in the covenant, but they, they weren't elect. And so, the warnings about apostasy are real, but what is lost is just place in the covenant, not salvation. Because these never were part of the elect in the first place. The only other option taken by some Calvinists is to say that these warned people are Christians. Really regenerate. But what they lose isn't salvation. They lose something else. Usually rewards. They'll say usually they lose their rewards in one form or another. At the final judgment. The the problem I have with that is that our writer says the problem with these people is they, verse 6, can't be restored to repentance. And and rewards, all through the New Testament, rewards either at the judgment or in heaven, wherever you want to put them, rewards are never given on the basis of repentance anywhere in the Bible. There's rewards for service, there's rewards for faithfulness, book of Revelation, there's rewards for martyrdom, people that suffered for Jesus... But nowhere are rewards said to be given for an act of repentance. I just don't think it works. So, whether these warned people are Christians on the verge of losing rewards, or unrepentant people who were just never Christians in the first place, According to Calvinism, there are no Christians losing salvation anywhere in this text. Might look like it, but that's not what's happening. Everybody still okay? So there, there, there might be Jewish people who were thinking about, you know, Christ, but they're still bound to the sacrificial system, MacArthur. There may be people who had various religious experiences that made it look like they were Christians, but they never were really saved, Piper. Or they might be Christians, but what they lose isn't salvation, they lose rewards. But what you don't have anywhere in there, if you follow me, there's no Christian losing salvation. Okay? That's the common denominator. And there's something very comforting in that. There's something very comforting in that for for some. But there's something extremely frightening as well. And I'm terribly concerned. I said I'd deal with this for a couple weeks and I'm not going to talk about it anymore. There's something frightening in that. I'm terribly concerned that it gets rarely discussed in a more Wesleyan-oriented church like ours, and I need to talk kind of openly about it just for a minute. 
I don't say these words lightly. They're not said just for effect. God knows my heart. I have no ill will toward any church lifting up Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of all. But there's a reason many Calvinistic churches post on their website only, only the Calvinistic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or what used to be called eternal security. Churches post their statements of faith on their websites. Our church does. Our church posts its core convictions on our website. And like all churches, we do that because we want everyone to be aware of them. We don't want these truths hidden. We want them talked about. We want them seen. We want them considered. We want them known. And if some church... Hypothetically, just pretend. If, if, if this Sunday morning, Grace Church said, put up on their screen and said, look at there's Cedarview Community Church's statement of faith. I have no problem with that. Right? They're not gossiping about me because I'm the one that posted those things there. And I put them there so everybody could see them. I've been looking at church websites all week. And if you go to all sorts, let me just, the reason I started talking about our website, and if any church wants to talk about our statement of faith, God bless them, that doesn't hurt my feelings, they're only advertising what I advertise first. And the reason I'm saying that is because I'm going to mention some website, and for sure, I'm not on social media at all, but for sure, someone in the church is going to say, here's what Pastor Don said, and they're going to run off with their revelation about how I was gossiping, and it's not. It's not. So I've been looking at church websites this week. And here's what you notice. Most of them will list that Christians can never lose their salvation. And the reason that is listed is because, well, because that's what we like to hear. I mean, there's, that's where the comfort is. That's where the encouragement is. But if you go on church websites, take, take all of the Harvest churches, for example. If you go on their websites, you can check it out. I checked it this morning. Or Victory Baptist. Or all the campus congregations. You will find, under their doctrinal statement, you will find it specifically said that once you're saved, you can never be lost. Once you're saved... You can't lose your salvation. And I think there's good marketing in that because that's what all Christians love to hear. What rarely happens is the question raised. And I want you to think about it for a minute. Why can salvation never be lost? If that's the case, let's assume that to be the case. Why can salvation never be lost? How, how can we be so positive that it can never be lost? And there, are, there aren't two answers to that question. There aren't three answers. There's only one answer to that question. Remember it 
every time you hear someone say salvation can never be lost, always remember the question, why can't it be? And there's only one answer to that question. Salvation is unlosable. Is that a word? Salvation is unlosable because divine grace is always, saving grace is always irresistible. Irresistible grace is not a complicated doctrine. And I know this is a little bit of theology here. Irresistible grace means God's saving grace is sovereign grace. That's the title of a lot of churches. It's sovereign grace in the sense that wherever he bestows it, nothing can prevent it and no one can refuse it. So God's saving grace overrides all opposition, inward and outward, always, 100% of the time. It can never, never, never be refused. It can never be discarded, not by anyone, not ever. It is irresistible grace. So here's the simplified take-home point. Irresistible grace is the engine of Calvinism. It makes everything else work. It's the root of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. And, and here's what this means. If salvation is unlosable, it's because divine grace is irresistible. And if God's saving grace is always, always irresistible, it can't possibly be offered to everyone because what would happen? Think it through. Everybody would be, of course, everybody would be saved. If God's grace is always, God's saving grace, 100% of the time, absolutely irresistible, and if it's offered to every sinner, no one's ever going to be lost. problem with that is we know from the lips of Jesus some people are going to be lost. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, Matthew 18, 8 and 9, cut it off, throw it away. Better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet to be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Calvinism recognizes this. Some people will be eternally lost. Virtually all evangelical Christians, unless you're like a Rob Bell, virtually all evangelical Christians believe some people will be lost. Calvinists know that. And because of its doctrine of irresistible grace, there's only one way out. And it's this. Jesus never died on the cross with the intention of reaching everyone with salvation. There's no other road. Do you see where I'm going here? There's not an option. 
if, if divine saving grace is always, always irresistible, and if some people are going to be eternally lost, there's nowhere else to land except that grace can't be offered to everyone. I'm not asking you to agree with it, but do you see the logic in that? Answer me out loud. Thank you so much. So his work on the cross was great enough and effective enough to save everyone. But God never intended, never had it in his plan to offer saving grace for all sinners. Jesus died on the cross offering saving hope only to some, only to the elect. And God never ever intended to offer saving grace to anyone but the elect. It's easy to hear that and it just kind of runs by like as a point of argument. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, I get that. Let that sit for a minute, please. Let that sit for a minute. In all of these churches promising Christians can never lose their salvation, there's only one way that doctrine works. Whether they post it on their website, which they won't, or not, they absolutely believe that Jesus never died on the cross with the intention of offering saving grace to everyone. I said, think about that. Jesus never died for everyone. Say that with me out loud. Jesus never died for everyone. Now ask yourself, does that feel right? Does that feel right? Ask yourself if that's a deal breaker. Ask yourself how important that is. Saving grace is never intended for everyone. Let, let that settle. Maybe not your sons and daughters. Maybe you. Maybe not your children. Maybe some of your children, but not all of them. Perhaps for you but not for your spouse. Perhaps not for your parents. Perhaps not for your grandchildren. Maybe only for some of them, not for others. This you won't find posted on any church website. That's where it goes. Eternal security. That's the only place it can go. Now how comforting is it when you read on church websites Christians can never lose their salvation? I'm saying there's a huge price to pay for that kind of teaching, which is why most churches only post eternal security. They don't say limited atonement or particular redemption. That's the new name for it in case you hadn't heard. Now, I took ages with this this morning. I get it. We won't do this again. 
I took time with it because it just doesn't get probed into all that often by either Calvinists or Wesleyans. And I think it, I think it cuts out the heart of the gospel of grace. Here's where we're going now. We have a little bit of time. I want to examine this text. The Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. I want to examine this text. You're looking at your watch. Don't worry. You want to what, Pastor Don? Like, I want to examine this text and see who these cautioned people are. To my mind, it's a powerful portrayal of redeemed people, to my mind. And then I want to look at what these Christians lose. And I'm convinced what they lose is their salvation. I do not believe divine grace is irresistible, though God could have made it so if he desired. He's sovereign. These regenerate people thoroughly reject grace to their eternal peril. Now, what I'd like to do is just consider one reason. One reason today that I believe that's what this text is teaching, and then we'll look at four reasons next Sunday. See, you feel better now, don't you? So we're wrapping up with this first point. Point number one. I believe these cautioned people are Christians because of the logical flow of the context or the contextual argument of the writer. I think it's extremely difficult to find a reason for verses 4 through 8 unless these verses are describing the same people as 5.11 to 6.3. And, and unfortunately... The only way to make you see that clearly is, is to read those two portions again back to back. So I want to read some scripture with you. We'll just do this quickly. If you've got a Bible or something, look this up. Hebrews 5.11 to 6.2. We're going to read, and then we're going to read Hebrews 6.3 to 8. We just have to do this mental work to make this clear. You all ready? Hebrews 5.11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, so surely these are Christians, you need once someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We looked at all of that last Sunday. It's online. So there's the passage and he's talking to Christians. Then you just keep going. Now Hebrews 6, 3 to 8. And this we will do if God permits. 
what will we do? Well, we'll, we'll leave the elementary things and move on to maturity. We're going to do that, he says, if God permits. For, verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, tasted the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Fallen away from what? And then have fallen away to, to restore them or renew them again. So they repented once already. To restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Here's what I want you to see. We're, we're wrapping up. I want you to see this. I took phrases out. And I want you to follow, follow me here. You have become dull of hearing. Christian or non-Christian? Christian. By this time, you ought to be teachers. Christian? Faith. For those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Christian? Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Christian? This we will do if God permits. Christian? Now, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then fall away to restore them again to repentance. So it's, the argument builds. The same argument builds. To the very same people. Our writer has just addressed these readers about their need to move on from their elementary repentance and cautioned them about their need to apply it properly and maturely. That's in 6.1. Therefore, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith, faith toward God. This is what he wants for them. But what if they don't? The only people he's been speaking to in this passage are Christians. That's what I was trying to show you. Those are the only people he's been speaking to. What if they don't move on to maturity? What if they don't do what he asks in 6.1? Our writer seems convinced that they will. 6.9. It's an encouraging verse. And most likely they will. I think we can admit that we would all be sluggish, 6.12, sometimes. We'd all be dull of hearing, 5.11, at times. But, but, but our merciful high priest can restore the weak and the fallen. All we need to do is come to the throne of grace, 4.16. And this we Christians do almost always, don't we? Bring our weak selves to the throne of grace. And be sure of this. We are never turned away from the throne of grace. We are never turned away by our sympathetic high priest. Hear me. 
No one who comes to the throne of grace is turned away. Not ever. There's no shortage of grace for every repentant heart. But there's still no denying our writer is a bit concerned. You don't warn unless you're at least fearful of the possibility of some bad circumstances. That's, that's what all warnings are. Severe thunderstorm warning. Tornado warning. That's where warnings come from. Our writer doesn't want these people continuing in their present course of immaturity, sluggishness, dullness of hearing, 511. And the important question to face is, why is he concerned? Why is he concerned? Is there anything eternal at stake here? And I believe the text states there's more at stake than we'd like to admit. I believe our writer's concern in this text is a very precise echo of Jesus' theology of, of the compounding effect of carelessly hearing and sluggishly obeying the truth we have heard. It's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 25, 29, and 30. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, this is interesting because there must have been something even what he has, is that contradictory? Will be taken away. How do, you, how, do you, how do you take away what someone didn't have? Even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's, here's the easily overlooked truth in this parable of the talents. I just read the last part of it. That servant, that servant who didn't use what he received, who didn't multiply it, who didn't grow it, the one talent man, he's obviously the key player in Jesus' story. Gets all the attention. Never forget, never forget he lost the one talent that he kept. Technically, he didn't lose it. Put it in the ground, he dug it out, and he had it. He lost the one talent that he kept. In other words, he, he lost it in the end, even though he didn't actually lose it. He didn't lose it, but he ended up with nothing. And the reason for that is Jesus' words in verse 29, even what he has will be taken away. So this is a parable about the loss of what a man thought he still had. Here is the lesson. You, you, everybody, you can't keep what doesn't multiply. You can't keep what doesn't move on to maturity. You can't keep what doesn't grow. 
when the master came and all of these servants came with their talents, did, did the one-talent man have a talent in his hand? He did, right? He still had it. Did he get to keep it? Why didn't he? He didn't multiply it. He didn't multiply it. So what happens with dullness of hearing? What happens with sluggish hearing? What happens with young people who think they're saved because mom and dad are Christians and I grew up in a Christian home, but there's nothing in their heart that's growing in devotion to Jesus? What happens? What happens to the person that thinks, well, you know, I grew up Lutheran or Catholic or Anglican, and I'm pretty much good, never darken the door of a church, never read the Bible, don't know Jesus personally? What happens? What, what, what you think you have? Jesus is the speaker here. Jesus doesn't deceive. There's another text where Jesus restates the same principle even more directly, and this will close. Here's the same idea in a different setting. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, or puts, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. There's, there's something that ought to be manifested in our lives. That's what he's saying. Something that shines. If it's invisible, it's probably not there. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. Nothing is secret that will not be made known and come to light. Jesus, okay, apply this. What are you talking about? Take care then how you hear. Do these words sound familiar? For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be, will be taken away. So, so you're looking here at the uh, deceptively quiet, unnoticed, incremental cost of not building on the foundations of your faith. That's what we talked about last week. How much does it matter? I mean, I'm saved. I'm in, right? We've just scratched the surface of this text. We'll continue with it next Sunday. What I want to say in wrap-up is, and now, see, now I'm serious because there, see, that's the last page. There is no reason for this to happen to anyone. No reason. Spiritual listening, hearing, considering what we've heard, that's always the key. And that's why there's one sentence that stands out in the New Testament. There's one sentence, you know the words, and the only person who ever utters these words is Jesus. No one but Jesus ever says them. And here they are. He, they're repeated over and over again. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear. Hearing matters. 
It's not rocket science, but it matters. You have a merciful high priest, but hearing matters. There is a throne of grace to which you can come with your deepest, most persistent failure and guilt, but hearing matters. God is gracious to everyone and doesn't want anyone to perish, but hearing matters. It matters eternally. Everyone said? Yes. 